One of the reasons that I love Scripture, that I love God's Word, is because in God's Word, there is this sense of God telling the whole story of lots of people. If I were writing a book and I, and I wanted it to be a book that changed history, I'd only tell good stuff. And, um, and, and what we found as we've looked at characters in the Old Testament is that their lives, many of them, were just a mess. They had ugly faith. Over the last eight weeks, we've talked about, about Noah. We've talked about Abraham and Sarah. We've talked about Isaac and Jacob. We've, uh, we've talked about Joseph and Moses. And, um, and the writer of Hebrews goes on when he talks about the story that God has written, and he says this in Hebrews 11, What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, you'll find that today, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. You'll see that in the, in the, in the life of the character that we're taking a, a, a look at today. The writer of Hebrews says, I don't have time to tell about Gideon, but I do today. So we're going to take a look at the story of Gideon. If you've got your Bibles, take them out and turn to Judges chapter 6. Uh, if you've got the app up, that'll work great, but you're going to want to open the Bible because not all of the verses of Scripture are going to be on screen. And as we tell the story, it's a great thing to just look down and kind of see where we are in the, in the midst of the process. The reason why it's so important to look at the ugly faith of Gideon today is because the story of Gideon is our story as well. The story of Gideon's life, it mirrors uh, us Gideon's story begins about 1,100 years before Jesus. So if you're, if you're thinking in terms of context, uh, his story is about 1,100 years before Jesus. It's about 250 years after the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt, and it's about 150 years before King David. So if, you can, if, if you're a history person that likes context, that gives you a sense of kind of where we are historically. The Israelites had turned their back on God. During this time period, they'd begun to worship other, other gods, other idols, and they really have rejected God. And God, because they had done so, allowed the nation of Midian, the Midianites, to come in and just devastate the Israelites. For seven years, the Israelites are just hurting every day because of the Midianites. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 6 says, Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Do you have a picture? Israelites are living in caves. They're building little fortresses to protect themselves from the Midianites because everything that they have, everything that they do, is, is under attack from Midian. The Israelites would plant crops. They would plant their crops, and the Midianites would do one of two things. They would either wait until they were just ready to harvest, and the Midianites would come in and sweep out the harvest and take it from themselves, kind of like the scene from Ants, uh, if you remember that movie, you know, where the hoppers come in and do that. It was either that, or they would just come in and wipe them out. They would just destroy the crops. The Israelites would, would, um, uh, would raise their, their, uh, their herds, their the sheep, their cattle, their camels. And the Midianites would just come in and either steal them or kill them. 
The Israelites were in a bad place. The, the Midianites were like the playground bully, right? Except instead of stealing change from the, from the, from the school kids, they're, they're beating them up. They're taking their homes. They're taking their livelihoods. They're taking their, their hope. It was bad. The Midianites so impoverished the Israelites that the Israelites, after seven years, cry out to God. God sends a prophet to Israel. Uh, we don't know the name of the prophet, but the prophet basically says, yeah, uh, here's the word of God. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who brought you out of Israel. I'm the one who saved you. And all I did was say, don't worship other gods. And you didn't listen. What did you expect was going to happen? Do you think it, w- it was not going to make any difference at all? In Washington, D.C., on the tidal basin is the Jefferson Memorial. On the northeast wall of the Jefferson Memorial are these words written by Thomas Jefferson. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. I know that we're only a few minutes into the message But somebody this morning desperately needs to hear that truth. God has shown his faithfulness to you in the past. He has rescued you. He has saved you. He has protected you. And you're really aware of it. But over time, your sense of who he is has begun to drift. And you've walked away from him. And you've stopped serving him. Yeah, maybe you still come to church. Maybe you still go through the motions. But that relationship has been replaced by other stuff in your life. Understand that God's justice will not sleep forever. You can't expect to live happily ever after when you've turned your back on God. So there's this character in the midst of this context between the Midianites and the Israelites named Gideon. Gideon, uh, Scripture says, as it introduces him, it says that he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, um, not very many people have threshed wheat before, right? Anybody uh, wheat threshers by trade? Uh, You know, that's not something that typically happens. What usually happens when you thresh wheat is that you do it on top of a of a hilltop because there's wind that comes over the top of the hilltop, and as you as you take the wheat that's been harvested and bang it together and go through the threshing process, the wind blows the chaff away. If you're on top of the hill, it makes the job lots lots easier. Conversely, when you, when, when you would build a wine press, you would do it down in a valley. Um, it would, uh, for really kind of the same reason except in opposite. When you're squashing grapes, you want all of the fluid that comes from those grapes to stay in an air. You don't want it to spill over, run down a hillside, that kind of stuff. Scripture says Gideon is threshing wheat, not on a hilltop, but down in a wine press. Why is he doing that down in a valley? It's because he's scared. It's because he's, he thinks at the very least the Midianites are going to come in and steal all the wheat that he's threshed, all the work that he's done, the wheat that he has to have to bake bread. That's, that's at the very least, at the worst, that they're going to discover him, discover that he's hiding out on him, and that, he's going to, and, and that they're going to kill him. Um, Judges uh, chapter 6, verse 12 says this, An angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? 
Where are all those wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian? Gideon asked the question that 3,000 years later we still ask, right? If God's there, if he's real, if he's powerful, if he's done all that stuff in the past, why is there so much stinking evil in the world? Why is my life such a mess? Why is there so much badness around? If God is there, if God is good, if God is powerful, why does that stuff exist? You know, God may have provided in the past, but Gideon says it seems like he's abandoned us now. Gideon was focused on the circumstances, which makes sense. Israel is is being terrorized by Midian. But he's focused on what's going on around them right now. And you know what's interesting? God doesn't answer his question. God instead says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Gideon's focus is on his circumstances and not on God. And God says, it's not about your circumstances, it's about me. I have chosen you to make a difference. I'm going to be with you. God says to Gideon, go in the strength that you have. I've already prepared you. I've already prepared the circumstances. Everything is in place. Go in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? And Gideon says, pardon me, Lord. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Gideon says, I'm a nobody. I am the runt of the litter. Anybody ever had puppies or kittens? Not you, your animals, hopefully. Um, And you know, when you have that litter of, of... Puppies, let's say, there's the big one that's so cute and the, you know, the, the ones that do all, and there's always the one, right? The runt of the litter that you think no one is ever going to take this animal. It's the runt of the litter. Gideon says, I'm the runt of the litter. My, my clan is the smallest in all of Israel. And I'm nothing special. I'm not the tallest. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the fastest. I'm not the best looking. I don't have the most power. I don't have wealth. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. God, you're talking to the wrong person. Have you ever felt that way? God, I'm nobody special. I'm just a guy in the middle of Michigan. I'm just a guy. The Lord answered Gideon, I will be with you. I will be with you. And you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if that's the case, if it's really me, give me a sign that you're talking to me. And so Gideon is talking to this guy, and and he says, just hang out here. And he goes back home, and he makes a meal. He whips up some unleavened bread. He cooks a roast. He makes some broth, and he brings it to this guy that he's been talking to. And the the guy that he's talking to says, hey, take that, put it on a rock. He doesn't eat it. He just says, put it on a rock. Gideon puts it on a rock, and, and that guy takes his staff and touches it with his staff. And as soon as he does, almost like a magic act that you'd think, it spontaneously burst into flame, and it's consumed. And then something else interesting happens. This is verse 21. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord 
disappeared. Now, we don't know if the writer here is saying that, you know, he got up and walked away. That's possible. He was just gone. Or if he did the I dream of genie thing and twinkled the nose and just was gone in an instant. We don't know. The, the language doesn't really tell us that. But in an instant, this guy is gone and Gideon says, man, I've been talking to I've been talking to God. I've been talking to an angel of the Lord, and I'm going to die. And God says to him, look, you're not going to die. Don't be afraid. I've got a job for you to do. Here's what I want you to do. You know that altar that has been built to Baal that's in your town. You know the Asherah pole that's beside it. Here's your job, Gideon. I will be with you. I'm sending you. Tear down that altar and then cut down the Asherah pole. And use the wood from the Asherah pole to, to uh, well, take the stones from, from the altar to Baal and build a new altar. Take the wood from the Asherah pole, catch it on fire, and take a bull from your father and, and sacrifice that bull to me on that new altar. Now, um, n- none of us have seen an Asherah pole. None of us have ever seen a picture of an Asherah pole because the, all of the historians, they don't know exactly what that was, what it looked like. But as I studied, this is, this is I think, the deal. The Asherah pole was the thing that signified to a town, to a community, to a, to a large geographic area, that this is where Baal worship took place. That pole was the thing that said, come here. It was the neon sign that was there. It's kind of like in our country, as the country moved west, as the population moved west, and new towns sprung up, and churches were built. They were built with steeples on top, with a cross on the top of the steeple, so that anyone who was in town knew when they were in trouble, where were they supposed to go? They were going to the church, to the church building. That, that, That height drew people. That was the deal with the Asherah pole. So, so God says to Gideon, chop down the Asherah pole, knock it down, build an altar to me with the altar that was for Baal and sacrifice a bull. Gideon takes 10 of his friends and he does it. He, he listens to God. He accepts that mission. But he's scared because the Midianites have been beating up the Israelites for seven years. And so he does it under cover of night, secretly. He's obeying God, but he's doing secretly because he's not sure what's going to happen. The next morning, the town wakes up and everybody looks and they look out across the horizon and there's no Asherah pole. It's kind of like uh, for anybody who has any, any context really with New York City, still even now, years later, you look at the New York skyline and you say, something's not right there because the Twin Towers aren't there. The people looked out across the horizon and said, something's not right. Where's the Asher pole? And the, and the people immediately become this crowd, this mob that's ready to kill whoever did it. And so they said, who did it? Who did it? Who did it? And somebody starts saying, you know, it was Gideon, son of Jehoash. And so the mob comes and they're ready to kill Gideon because he's destroyed the God that protects their city. That's their mindset. He's knocked down the sign that says, this is where we're supposed to worship. Um, and Gideon's father does something really interesting because the scripture says that it was his father's idol, the, or his father's altar. The altar to Baal was his father's altar. Um, his father comes out and says, uh, hold on a second. If Baal's real, if Baal is really God, Baal can defend himself. You don't need to kill Gideon. As a matter of fact, if you kill Gideon, you're going to be dead in the morning. And somehow in that interaction, the mob is dispersed and goes back home. And uh, 
and, and the, the, uh, Gideon has accepted the mission, the, the mission he has done, what he's supposed to. Um, and, and the scripture, as it continues to tell the story, says about this time, the Midianite army gathers. So in the Valley of Jezreel, which is not very far away, um, the, the Midianite army comes in. And uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 10, tells us how big that army is. It's 135,000 strong. 135,000. Anybody know how many, uh, how many troops were at Gettysburg in the Civil War? Uh, it's the largest battle in North America. The largest battle in North America, Gettysburg, had 165,000 troops from the north and the south. This army is 135,000 strong. And, and God has called Gideon to lead Israel against them. Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon and he blows a trumpet and sends out a message throughout Israel saying, man, this army has amassed, you've got to come help. But he still isn't sure that he trusts God. There's a phrase in our English that we still talk about today where we talk about um, throwing out a fleece to God. And that phrase comes from this story of Gideon. We're going to read about it in just a second. A fleece was, uh, it was the wool from a sheep that had been uh, sheared and cut off. And listen to what happens beginning in verse 36. Gideon said to God, there's, a, there's an army of 135,000 people out there. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I'll place wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, so if the fleece is wet and the ground's dry, then I'll know for sure that you're going to save Israel through me. And that's what happened, verse 38 says. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, and it filled a bowl of water. The ground's dry. Just the fleece is wet. Gideon's still not convinced He says to God, God, don't be angry with me. Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Let me test you one more time with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and all the ground wet with dew. That night, God did so, verse 40 says. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. As you you enter into Judges chapter 7 men begin to respond to the message that Gideon has, has sent out. 32,000 soldiers respond to the call to fight the Midianites, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Uh, they, they were living in fear. 32,000 men come out, and God says to Gideon, you know what, it's too many men. 32,000 he has, 135,000 is who he's going to fight, and God says, no, 32,000 is too many. Because if you win with 32,000, you'll think that it's by your own strength, by your own strategy, by your own willpower that you've done it. And I'm the one who's going to win the fight. So Gideon, get rid of some guys. So Gideon goes out and says, "Uh, you know what? If you're scared of this fight, just go home. And think about it. Think for seven years, Israel has been oppressed by the Midianites. They've been stealing all their stuff. They've been, they forced them to live in caves. There was reason to be afraid. And 22,000 go home. Two-thirds of the army go away. So there's only 10,000 left. And Gideon looks out and he sees his 10,000, 135,000. He's outnumbered 13 to 1. And God says, there's still too many. And if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, yeah. oh, okay, God. 
And God says, here's what I want you to do. Send the troops down to the river to get a drink of water. And he does, and the troops go down, and, and 9,700 of them go down into the river and drink from the river on their bellies with their heads down, that kind of thing. But 300 come to the edge of the river and on their knees reach down and drink the water as they're looking at the landscape, looking for the enemies, looking to see if Midian's going to attack. And God says, that's who I want. I want those 300. And Gideon's got to be thinking, 300, 135,000. Whatever you say, God. It's interesting then that, that it doesn't say that Gideon's afraid. It doesn't say that Gideon asks for any kind of sign. But God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, just to show you that I'm going to win the battle, here's what I want you to do. Tonight, take one of your buddies and sneak into the Midianite camp and I'm going to show you something. So they do. Night falls. They go down into the camp. They come just outside a tent. And just outside the tent, they hear two guys talking inside. And one of them says, you know, I just had the weirdest dream ever. And the other guy says, what was it? And he said, I dreamt that this loaf of bread came rolling down the hill and hit our tent. And it knocked the tent over and it wiped out the tent. And the other guy said, I know exactly what that means. That loaf of bread is Gideon. The Israelites are going to wipe us out. And Gideon, I'm, I, in my mind, Gideon's got to look at his buddy and go, are you hearing this? They take off, they go back to the Israelite camp, and Gideon, Gideon, Gideon says to his 300 guys, God has given Midian to us, given us the Midianites. Here's what I want you to do. Get a clay pot, get a torch, and a trumpet. Everybody has to have a clay pot, a torch, and a trumpet. Um, they probably still had their, their swords because they're, you know, they're soldiers kind of stuff. But uh, Gideon divides them into three groups, and he places those three groups of 100 men each on the hillsides outside the Valley of Jezreel. So they're in three different places, and Gideon says, don't do anything until I tell you to. Um, at Gideon's cue, they smash the clay jars with the torch inside. So all of a sudden, it's light. There's this incredible racket that comes from the, from the glass jar being shattered. They blow their trumpets together, 300, um, and, and they shout, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. The Midianites are down in a valley. You know what sound does in a valley? It bounces, it reverberates, it echoes everywhere. And so there's this incredible cacophony that takes place. The Midianites, it's in the middle, it's uh, the second, the middle watch has just started. So the first set of soldiers that were on guard have gone to sleep. They're tired, they're out of it completely. The second set have just woken up and they're, you know, they're digging at their eyes, they're trying to wake up. And in an instant, all of a sudden, it looks like they're surrounded by tens of thousands of soldiers. There's this incredible noise, and the Midianites wake up. They don't know what to do, and in the chaos, they begin to fight with themselves and kill each other. Um, uh, it doesn't take too long in the midst of that mass of chaos that they begin to flee, and then uh, Gideon and his army begin to chase the Midianites. Um, they send word out, and, and the Israelites that had gone home, probably the, the 9,700, probably the 22,000, come out of the hills, and they begin to, to uh, pursue the Midianites as well, until all 135,000 Midianites are defeated. 
with an army of 300. God is the one who gives the victory. Comes to the end of the story in, in Judges chapter 8, and Israel looks to Gideon after this massive victory and says, man, you've got to be our king. Verse 23, Gideon says, I'm not going to rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon had it right. Man, he had it so right that it wasn't his to do. God had been the one who had given the victory. But Gideon says something that's interesting. He says to to all these guys who have plundered the Midianites, he says, hey, there is one thing I want. Um, I, I want a gold earring from each of you that you have taken from the plunder. Not your own stuff, but when you've plundered the Midianite army, they're wearing earrings, doing all kinds of stuff. Ah, give me a gold earring from each, uh, from each uh, of, of the soldiers here, each of the nation of Israel. And they do. They bring them. Gideon puts a sheet out. They throw the gold earrings on the sheet. Um, Gideon mo- uh, melts it down. It's 43 pounds of gold. 43 pounds of gold. And Gideon does something really interesting. The scripture says that he fashions it into an ephod. Um, that ephod could, could have been a breastplate like, like the high priest wore, something that went around him. That that's, might have been what it is. Sometimes the word ephod is used to describe uh, like a, a, a statue, an idol. Um, and it could have been that. But what's interesting is that that symbol of God's victory, the gold that had been given to Gideon, ultimately became an idol that was a stumbling block for the nation of Israel. God had provided for them, but their focus on the, on the, uh, the um, symbol that they created took them away from God who had done it. God says to Gideon, God said to Gideon through the whole process, I've chosen you to make a difference. I've chosen you to make a difference. I will be with you. God won the battle, not Gideon. Uh, there are four lessons I, wanna, I just want to touch on really quickly from Gideon's ugly faith. The first is this. Say yes to God and see things change. When we say yes to God, our circumstances change. Gideon's leadership in tearing down the altar and the pole, in spite of the people's opposition, gave him credibility to call others to battle. Do you understand that when Gideon listened to God and then he put the word out, people said, you know what, we can follow him. Stuff started to change. Gideon's decision to stand for God inspired others. What's funny to me is this, as I was thinking through this, we teach our kids that all the time, right? Your kids go to school and something's going on at school, and we say, stand up for what's right. You know what? When you do what's right in school, other kids are going to follow you. They're going to stand up with you and, and stand to do what's right. You do that at school, and others will follow. But we get to be adults, and we don't think that same, that same principle is true anymore. We think, yeah, if I stand up for what's right, nobody's going to pay attention. I'm, I'm going to be the object of their, uh, uh, of their uh, ostracism. They're, they're, they're not going to do anything. When Gideon said yes to God, things began to change. It changed his family. I said before, um, it was Gideon's father's altar that was made to Baal. And when Gideon stood up and did what God said, all of a sudden his father turned around and said, and began to defend him. Said, you know what? Baal doesn't need anybody to defend him. Baal can do it by himself if he's real. When Gideon said yes to God, it changed his nation. It gave a voice to the voiceless. 
Everybody was ready to kill him for tearing down the altar, uh, for tearing down the Asherah pole. But when he asked for help, 32,000 people responded to his call. 32,000 people responded. It changed his nation, and it changed the circumstances for everyone. The end result of Gideon saying yes to God was that the Midianites were wiped out, that their presence was gone. The nation of Israel went from being bullied to living in, being bullied and living in caves to having 40 years of peace. They went from looking over their shoulders to walking around with pride. They went from poverty and hopelessness to a dependence on God because one person said yes. Second lesson from Gideon's ugly faith. Say yes to God even when there are overwhelming odds. Think about what it must have been like for Gideon as a leader to have 300 soldiers and face an army of 135,000. Overwhelming odds. Many of you face overwhelming odds at work. You say, you don't understand where I work. The culture there is one of deceit. We cheat people all the time. It's a part of the fact. In order to be successful, you've got to lie. You've got to do all this stuff. The odds are overwhelming. For some of us, we look around and we look at the country and we say, I don't understand this, God. We live in such a corrupt political culture. Can one person really make a difference in our culture? Say yes to God, even when there are overwhelming odds. For some of us, you look around at your family and you say, my, my family's a mess. These people can't stand each other. They can't stand to be in the presence of each other. This person's sleeping with that person. This person's doing this. This person, you know, they had this big fight. One person can't do anything. Say yes in spite of overwhelming odds. Third thing, say yes even if those around you don't believe. Say yes to God, even if those around you don't believe. Part of the story that I hadn't told yet that's interesting, when the the nation of Israel is pursuing the Midianites, they've chased them out of the valley, they're chasing them down. Um, uh, They they come to this town called Sukkoth, and and they talk to the guys there and they say, hey, give give our soldiers some bread, they're exhausted. Give us us something to eat and drink. And, And the leaders of that town say, we're not helping you. Have you already defeated Midianite? Do you, are you holding the heads of the kings of Midian? And Gideon says, you know what? You don't want to help? That's fine. But understand there's going to be a price to pay. Goes to the next town, to Peniel. And the exact same thing. He says, give, give our guys something to eat, something to drink. And the guys from Peniel say, mm, you know what? You haven't won the battle yet. We're not helping you. And Gideon says, we are going to. And and you're going to suffer the consequences. Say yes to God even when people around you don't believe. They can't see what you see. They can't hear God's what God has been saying to you. Say yes even when others don't believe. Fourth thing is this. Say yes to God even without the fleece. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and they said, you know what, if you're really the son of God, if you're really Messiah, show us a sign. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. None will be given it except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? That Jesus would die, be buried, be in the grave for three days and come back to life. 
That was the sign of Jonah. When God tells us to do something, we've got to say yes to him. We don't need other things to confirm that when, we're, when God speaks clearly to us. Uh, James wrote and said, If anyone knows the, the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. When you know what God is calling you to do, you don't need additional confirmation. Don't get me wrong. God can and does sometimes work through a fleece. He does do that sometimes. But don't miss this. Gideon's asking for a fleece was not a sign of faith. It was a sign of lack of faith. God had already said, Gideon, mighty warrior, I have chosen you. I will be with you. And Gideon said, eh, I'm not so sure. The act of faith would have been for Gideon to act on what God had told him. Putting out a fleece was not an act of faith. It was an act of a lack of faith. A fleece is really easy to manipulate. Don't miss that. Sometimes, again, don't miss me. Sometimes God works that way. But sometimes we say, you know what, God? I think I'm supposed to quit my job. If I don't sell X amount of product this week, I'm going to take that as a sign for, from you that I'm supposed to quit my job. And then we don't make it and we quit our job. You know what? That may not be a sign from God at all. It may be a sign that you're lazy and you're not doing the work that you need to to sell your product. It's easy for us to manipulate fleeces. Why was Gideon's faith ugly? You know, we're talking about this whole concept of these heroes that had ugly faith. Gideon didn't believe God's assessment of himself. The very first thing that God said to him was, Mighty warrior, I am with you. Gideon didn't believe it. That's an ugly faith. Gideon didn't believe God's clear call and provision. God said to Gideon, I have given you everything that you need. I'm going to take care of you. And Gideon came back and said, "Ah, Can I put this fleece out? God, show me. Gideon didn't guard his choices. It made his faith ugly. That ephod that he made became a stumbling block for the nation of Israel. It became an idol that took him away from God. One other part of the story that's there at the end of chapter 8 that's just really interesting to me, it says that Gideon had many wives and 70 sons. And then it says, and he had a mistress in Shechem. And that mistress had a son named Abimelech. And if you go home and read um, Judges chapter 9, the thing that you'll find about Abimelech is that he was incredibly evil in God's sight. He ends up killing all 70 of Gideon's sons. Gideon didn't guard his choices. So here's the bottom line. Here's Here's the final question. How does God want to use you? What is it that God wants you to do? For some, it may be that he has something very specific that he's talking to you about at work or in your family or in your sports league or in your neighborhood. What is it that God wants to do through you? For what purpose is he coming and saying, I am with you, mighty warrior. I've got a task for you. And the second part of that is, will you say yes? That's the question. Will you say yes? Judges chapter 6, verses 14 and 16. 
the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? I will be with you. Am I not sending you? I will be with you. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now recognizing that the story of Gideon is our story. That you call us to do things just like Gideon, that when you first called Gideon, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. You call us, and for some of us, God, we don't have a clue what that is. But that as we say yes to you, that becomes much clearer, just as Gideon's task did. God, my prayer for us today, my prayer for us today is that we would recognize your voice, that we would recognize the interaction that we have with your angels, with your people, with your calling, that we would recognize that it's from you and that we would say yes. That we would hear your spirit whisper and speak in our ears, am I not sending you? I have chosen you. And that we wouldn't be content to put that voice out of our mind, to drift, to walk a different direction. God, we fully believe that you have called us to impact people with the grace of Jesus. We fully believe that there are people here in our area who will be lost eternally. We fully believe, God, that you want to transform our culture by the power of Jesus. Help us to say yes. Help us to hear you say, I'm sending you. I have chosen you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.